Scripture reading is found in three places this morning, beginning 2 Kings chapter uh, 12. I'm going to skip our way through the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 12, then Luke chapter 24, and then finally Hebrews chapter 7. If you are visiting with us today, we have been making our journey through uh, the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, and we've arrived at chapter 12. It'll lead us to Luke 24, the last part of Luke's gospel, and finally to Hebrews 7, some reflection on all this. But listen first to 2 Kings chapter 12. Each one of these is the word of the Lord. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash, I apologize, I don't back up here, Joash, spelled Jehoash in this chapter, I will say Joash so you're not confused. It's the same young man as last week. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Joash said to the priests, All the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take each from his donor and let them repair the house wherever any need of repairs is discovered. But by the 23rd year of King Joash, the priests had made no repairs on the house. Therefore, King Joash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, Why are you not repairing the house? Now therefore, take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house." So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people and that they should not repair the house. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one answered, entered the house of Yahweh. And the priests who guarded the threshold put it in it all the money that was brought into the house of Yahweh. And whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest came up and they begged and counted the money that was found in the house of Yahweh. So they would then give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of Yahweh. And they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of Yahweh and to the masons and the stonecutters as well as to buy timber and quarried stone for making repairs on the house of Yahweh for any outlay for the repairs of the house. But there were not made for the house of Yahweh basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or silver from the money that was brought into the house of Yahweh. For that was given to the workmen who were repairing the house of Yahweh with it. And they did not ask for an accounting from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to pay out to the workmen, for they dealt honestly. 
The money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of Yahweh. It belonged to the priests. At that time, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of Yahweh and of the king's house, and sent these to Hazael, king of Syria. Then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? His servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo on the way that goes down to Silla. It was Josachar the son of Shemaeth and Jehazabad the son of Shomer, his servants, who struck him down so that he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising God. Finally, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning of verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. 
since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. By the 23rd year of his reign, the priests had made no repairs on the house. And you thought our social hall renovation was taking a long time. Today, we celebrate the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. And in the past several years, when we've marked and celebrated this day, I have had us focus our attention on Jesus Christ as our King, as our ascended royal King. So we have, for example, traced out the role from the beginning to the end of Adam and Eve in the garden, appointed by God, called to exercise rule and dominion over creation in God's place. And then, of course, we stop by to see God's promise uh, in his work in establishing a king in the promised land, and then his promise to David always to have a son on the throne. And it's a promise we know culminates in the arrival of Jesus Christ. And we park for a moment at the cross and notice Jesus hanging under the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then, of course, we always notice Jesus in his resurrection appearances to his disciples in the same flesh in which he was born and suffered and died until he's taken up to the mountain where he ascends to, note this, God's right hand. Undeniably, a position of honor and rule, a kingly appointment with his enemies under him as a footstool. Jesus ascends as king. And that's good news for us as we live and move and have our being under the kingship and rule of Christ over all things for our sakes, with a special interest in the church. But today, I want to fill out that picture just a bit more to have us notice Jesus also ascends as our great high priest. That is, he ascends as our kingly priest or perhaps as our priestly king. Along the way, I want you to see that the ascension of Jesus is not just an afterthought or an added feature or a nice way to conclude the life of Jesus on earth. It is as essential to us and our salvation as every other aspect of his work is. Therefore, worthy of our pausing to mark this occasion and to celebrate it. And in a happy coincidence, we've arrived at 2 Kings chapter 12, where the roles and the goals of king and priest coalesce in the persons of Joash the king and Jehoiada the priest. If you were here last week, you'll remember Joash is 
the little boy who is rescued at the last moment by his aunt Jehoshaphat. And he's rescued from his wicked grandmother, Athaliah, who has as her desire to wipe out the entire royal family. And apart from this salvation of Joash being rescued and brought into the temple, Athaliah succeeds. That is, she's nearly successful in extinguishing the Davidic line, which means she's nearly successful in extinguishing God's promises to David. Joash grows up in the temple, and as one of you pointed out to me last week, this was actually brilliant because his grandmother was not the kind of woman who would ever darken the doors of the temple. And you remember his aunt Jehoshaphat was married, just happened to be married to the priest, his name Jehoiada. And together, the two of them, with an emphasis on what Jehoiada does later, they protect and they preserve Joash until he's seven years old. And then Jehoiada calls together all the important people in the land, and he assembles them, swears them to an oath of secrecy, and produces the child. This is the boy descended from David, the last of his kind. They crown him king, they celebrate his arrival, there's peace and rest in the land and the destruction of all of the high places and temples and shrines to Baal and including the killing of the prophet of Baal. And now we come to chapter 12 and we discover Joash is essentially a good king. There's still a problem of the false worship at the high places that never seems to go away, but he's essentially a good king, and he's essentially a good king because Jehoiada, the priest, instructs him and advises him. Somewhere along the way, Joash, likely with a bit of a prod from Jehoiada, notices the temple is in need of repair. He would have known where all the cracks and crevices were because that's where he learned to walk and run. But we also learn from the same story told in 2 Chronicles that the temple is in disrepair because it had been trashed and plundered by the sons of Athaliah. The sacred articles of the temple had been taken and put to use in the worship of Baal. So Joash commands the priest to collect all the variety of offerings and to use those offerings to fund the renovation and the restoration of the temple. 23 years into his reign, Joash notices the priests are taking all the money for themselves. None of of it is being diverted toward the cause of renovation. Nothing has been done to repair the temple. And we'll learn a little later on in 2 Chronicles again that the priests clearly did not have the same heart or desires as Joash and Jehoiada do. Well, now uh, Joash gathers them in again and gives them a new and direct command. Their income is going to be reduced to the point where they will be able to keep the proceeds from the sin and the guilt offerings, but everything else goes into a box with a lid with a hole in it, not unlike those at the back. 
God's people are encouraged to give beyond what they were required to give. And again, 2 Chronicles tells us they do this with enthusiasm. The box is filled, it's emptied, it's filled and emptied again, and the priests count the money and bag the money and distribute the money as payment for services rendered to the variety of skilled workmen who set about to renovate the temple. And up until verse 12, everything seems to be going great. But then we're told the repairs do not include the replacement or the upgrade of the gold and the silver vessels and all the accoutrement and all the uh, instruments used for worship. And by verse 17, everything falls apart. In a bit of a foreshadowing of what is to come, Hazael, king of Syria, along with his army, makes his way down to Judah. He has a victory along the way that persuades Joash to, uh, towards some move of diplomacy. And it seems at first like a brilliant move because it undoubtedly saves lives. But Joash plunders both the temple and the palace of all the gold and the silver accumulated by several kings before him and even of his own wealth. And he pays off Hazael. Hazael seems happy with that for now. He doesn't have to fight. He gets a large amount of gold and silver. And so he heads back home. Somewhere in here, uh, Joash, the shine comes off and, and a couple of his people, his servants, conspire against him. They assassinate him and his son Amaziah reigns in his place. And from both this story in 2 Kings chapter 12 and in 2 Kings chapter 24, we learn Joash is mostly a good king only as long as Jehoiada was alive. So the destruction of the Baal worship and worshipers and the altars dedicated to Baal and the restoration of the temple, the reordering of right and proper worship of Yahweh was really influenced by Jehoiada the priest. Joash undoubtedly, in his debt for having saved his life, uses whatever power he has to accomplish what are essentially Jehoiada's purposes. And when Jehoiada dies, the wheels fall off. In other words, the best work during this period, as short-lived and as incomplete as it was, came about when the goals of the priest and the king aligned, when they worked together, when they were in tandem to eradicate worship of Baal, to elevate the worship of Yahweh, to restore the temple, and to renew right worship. And this is a picture of what we see in Jesus in His ascension. And we have Jesus telling His disciples in Luke 24, everything in the Old Testament pointed to me and it was to be fulfilled in me in my death and resurrection. And then He gives the priestly blessing as He is elevated from their presence. And we know Jesus ascends to heaven as our triumphant King. But when we look to the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 7, we recognize he ascends 
as our priest as well. And as he fulfills the office of priest, we're given this series of comparisons throughout the book of Hebrews, but I'll focus especially on chapter 7 today, a contrast or comparisons between Jesus and the Old Testament priests. Old Testament priests were designated priests because of their lineage, because of their family. They were sons of Levi. Jesus is appointed priest because he's the son of God. Old Testament priests came about their office by virtue of a law that said those born to their tribe would be set apart as priests. Jesus, on the other hand, is not born of the tribe of Levi, but born of the tribe of Judah. He becomes priest under these special circumstances, that is, by direct divine appointment, ratified by God's own oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Old Testament priests were many in succession because they kept dying. Jesus holds his office permanently through the power of his resurrected, indestructible life. Old Testament priests were themselves sinners and therefore needed to make sacrifices every day, first for themselves and then, only then, for others. And then they needed to do it every day. And even though they were set apart from their work, even though they were set apart by clothes and ceremonies and purification rituals that identified them as holy and blameless and pure and even set apart from the rest of the people, the priests were only those things, outwardly and ceremonially. Any real inward purity they possessed was alien to their nature. Jesus, on the other hand, is holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And he possesses these qualities and these characteristics of himself and in himself. That is to say, Jesus has real, personal, lasting holiness, blamelessness, and purity that are intrinsic to his nature and to his person, lived out in a world filled with temptation he resisted at every turn. So Jesus was sinless, and he made one sacrifice, a sacrifice not for himself, but of himself, for us, once and for all time. The Old Testament priesthood was nothing if not transitory and impermanent. Jesus, on the other hand, is our eternal priest. And it wasn't just that Christ's office or his sacrifice were superior to the office and the sacrifice of Old Testament priests, but Christ himself excels at every level, the deepest level of lasting effectiveness. Now ask yourself, what was the priest designed to do? Not simply to offer sacrifices, but wasn't he to bridge the gap between God and God? And man. When the priest entered into the most holy place, he's entering into the place God had chosen to dwell among his people in some kind of concentrated, specific way. And the priest's entrance into the most holy place, into the presence of God, is for the people in their place for their sakes. And it was there God and man meet recapturing something of the fellowship and the communion that was experienced and lost 
in the garden by those first worshipers that worshiped something else. And this is what Jesus Christ came to do, that is to bring us to God. And this is precisely where the, uh, we see the intersection between Christ's ascension and our salvation. This is where they come together. And to appreciate this point is, is to come to Hebrews chapter 7 to ask the question, what does it mean to be saved? Notice how in chapter 7, salvation is more than we sometimes think of it. It's not just the forgiveness of sins, as great as that is. It's not even just the purity or the perfection that come about when we are declared righteous because of our union with Christ. Rather, to be saved means to be forgiven and to be made pure and perfect so that we can enter into and abide in the presence of God. Or to put this even more pointedly, salvation is more than the declaration of being forgiven. It includes our being welcomed into and abiding in the presence of God as pure and perfect and sinless people made that way because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ applied to us because we are united to Him. Remember the famous words of chapter 10, verse 19. I read them to you already this morning. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. If we were saved merely to have the penalty of our sin paid for, the cross would have been sufficient. If we were saved merely to have new life, the resurrection of Christ would have been sufficient. But if we are saved in order to enter into the presence of God, we absolutely need the ascension of Jesus. And please do notice, you can't get one of those events without getting them all. Because you get one Jesus who lived through them all. Where he goes, or even better, where he returns to heaven, in our perfected human nature, into the gloriously heavenly presence of God. Hebrews tells us he's entering into a temple not made with human hands, or not rehabbed or refurbished, even if it's 23 years later, by human hands. But he enters into the perfect heavenly temple made by God. A temple not made with human hands, a temple of which the Old Testament temple Joash grew up and ran around in and restored was just a copy. Because the true heaven and the blueprints of the true heaven were shown to Moses when he went on the mountain. And Moses passed on those blueprints and said, we're going to build a tent that looks like something like this. And David said, I want to build a temple. And God said, no, not you, but your son Solomon. And so Solomon built a temple that looked a little bit just a little bit, like the true temple in heaven. 
And that gets us to chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse 1, that says this. The point of all this, and you're probably thinking, this is great, I want to hear it. What is the point of all this? We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There it is. Not for the first time and certainly not for the only time in Hebrews. The offices of Joash the king and Jehoiada the priest coalesce, come together, find their fulfillment in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his ascension. Notice, we have such a high priest, better than Jehoiada, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's a kingly place, better than Joash. He ascends to the position of kingly authority, the right hand of God, and he sits there as our great high priest. The ascension of Jesus Christ in our flesh, having earned our salvation, assures us that we can stand there too. Ascension Day doesn't get nearly as much press as some of the other holidays, though I do thank the three of you who sent me a card. But it's not enough simply to set aside a day to celebrate it. It really is a day to be reminded that we live out our lives as I urge you to do this day and week before the face of God in whose presence you stand because you are united to Christ who has gone before us. In the power of Christ our King, in the purity of Christ our Priest, the one who unites us to himself and by the power of his Holy Spirit whom he's poured out on the church has brought you, even in this hour, to be with God and then praise God. He is able to save not halfway, but completely. Not just forgiveness, not just uh, holiness, not just renewed life, but all this summed up in one person so that you and I and everyone who's living and trusting in Christ might enjoy the presence of God forever and for all time and to give him the praise and the worship and the adoration he deserves and you will desire to give because of what he's done for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the offices of the Old Testament of priest and king. Thank you that Jesus is the fulfillment of them in every way beyond our imagination. Lord Jesus, thank you for your present reign and rule and your present presence before your Father. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who unites us to you by faith that we might receive these good gifts and everything you've accomplished for us because we are now in the presence of your Father with you. Lord, make us long for the day of the return of our Savior who will come as he went. We'll restore all things and we'll bring heaven and earth together that we might live everlastingly in your glorious, radiant presence. 
giving you eternally all the praise and adoration and worship you deserve. Receive our thanks. Hear our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people say together, amen.